Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And folks, we made it to 2020. We are here in another election year. It is probably going to be one of the more invigorating, frustrating, infuriating, exciting years in Georgia politics, in national politics, and we are excited to get to spend it with you. And spending it with me today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Happy to be here as always and just happy to start 2020 to see what it brings. And also joining us is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? In the words of Samuel L. Jackson in Jurassic Park, hold on to your butts. We're in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot Samuel L. Jackson was in Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's really I did funny. Too. It, took, it took me a really long time to realize that was him. An embarrassing Good. long amount of time. Good 1990s reference. Especially because our politics sometimes feels like it was taken back to the 90s. On this week's podcast, we are going to discuss the seven questions that will shape Georgia politics that the AJC's Greg Bluestein has for 2020. If you haven't seen this already, Greg Bluestein laid out everything that there really is to look forward to in 2020 in Georgia politics. We're going to talk about his list, get a good reaction to it. Um, and preview what the year has in store for all of you, all of us, anyone who cares about politics in the Peach State. But before we get started, we unfortunately have some really somber news to share. Since we last recorded, news broke that Congressman John Lewis, a longtime representative of Georgia's 5th Congressional District, has been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. This is news that I think for people who admire John Lewis for all of the things that he has done in his life and for his longtime presence in our politics was really disappointing, was really sad news to hear that he had been diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer. We wanted to first and foremost send our best wishes, our prayers, and our love to John Lewis and his family and to talk just a little bit here about some of the things that he has been through in his life, some of the important causes that he has fought for. We certainly don't want to eulogize him right now. On Thursday, the day that we're recording, he actually went to the House and cast a vote. Uh, He was back in the House for the first time since his diagnosis became public. But Megan, I know that in preparation for this episode, you spent a lot of time reflecting on John Lewis's life and, and looking back at all of the causes in which he fought so passionately for Why don't you just share some of your thoughts with us about Congressman Lewis? Sure. So I adore Congressman Lewis. He is my uh, my congressman. I'm in Georgia's congressional fifth. So, um, you know, when I heard the news, I just like started thinking about him and just kind of reminded myself of all the amazing things that he has done and just like the way the course of his life. And one of the things John Lewis talks a lot about is getting into, quote, good trouble. And I so admire him for this because this is something that like really resonates with me. Good trouble is exactly how I see being disruptive in a positive way. And this is what John Lewis has built his life doing. Um, He has fought for civil rights for years. He marched alongside, alongside Martin Luther King Jr. And he's just had such a, such an amazing life. And I am so glad that he is still my my congressman. So just some fun facts about him. Um, during the civil rights movement alone, he 
is um, estimated to have been arrested 40 times. And what is thought to be his 45th arrest actually happened in 2013 when he was protesting on behalf of uh, comprehensive immigration reform. He's just such a cool dude. And he's one of those people that is really exemplary of if you believe in something, you put yourself on the line, you put your life on the line, and you just really go for it. Uh, He also led a sit-in on the House floor back in 2016 to protest inaction on gun control. And also in 2018, he's quoted as saying, just tell me whatever you want me to do. I will go to the borders. I'd get arrested again. If necessary, I'm prepared to go to jail. And this was in reference um, to the family separations at the border. Back in the, during the civil rights movement, he was crucial in getting the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed um, just with his actions. He, um, during the civil rights movement, he was the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordination Committee, Coordinating Committee. And as part of that committee and as part of his efforts, he actually trained and rehearsed being nonviolent to ensure that any of the protests and any of the sit-ins and anything that he did and his uh, anything that his cohort did could be they knew that they knew how to respond in a nonviolent and appropriate way. He was also during the Edmund Pettus Bridge protest, also known as Bloody Sunday, he and 600 others crossed uh, the bridge and then were attacked by the police. Um, The protest was actually to advocate for voting rights, as I previously mentioned, his involvement in actions that influenced the Voting Rights Act. And he actually suffered a uh, fractured skull due to his uh, beatings by the police. So really puts his life on the line. In addition to just being a really stand-up guy and an amazing congressman, having done a ton of work for Congress, his CV is longer than I could even begin to read on this show. He's also a celebrated author. He's got two sets of graphic novels. One of them is called March. It's a set of three. I was actually gifted a set when I visited his office and met with one of his staffers a few months ago. And then the follow-up to that series is called Run, and I believe the first one of that has been released And in addition to that, he's credited on his IMDb page with 88 appearances on film. And one of them is as a voice actor in the cartoon Arthur. He's continuing an amazing legacy. And like Kyle said, we just wish him well. And we wanted to make sure that our listeners knew some just a highlight, a very brief highlight of some of the things that this amazing congressman has done. And so we sent him all the well wishes. Yeah, John Lewis is one of those figures who nationally I feel like a lot of people know, and he's one of the you know few congressmen I feel like people can identify and recognize from TV. But in Georgia, being someone who's worked on a lot of campaigns and just been around the political uh, circle, John Lewis is a larger-than-life figure who uh, you, you know something is serious uh, when he shows up. And, you know, for me, he was one of the first uh, political figures that I ran into when I started getting involved in Democratic politics. And I still, you know, remember uh, the first Jason Carter for governor event that I went to. The The fact that John Lewis was going to be there was a, a pretty big draw for me. And it was a pretty insane experience to uh, be in the same room as, as such a huge figure as John Lewis. So um, definitely, you know, prayers and best wishes for him and his family. And if there's anyone who can fight cancer through sheer willpower, it's probably John Lewis. So I, I think I think he uh, still has a lot to do and a lot we'll see from him in, uh, you know, this time. And I'm sure he'll keep on fighting and getting into good trouble, as he always does. Definitely. Well, and it's such a testament to the man that he is, to his character and his values that 
he came of age as an activist in a time when the nation in which he was living did not want to fully honor the dignity of his humanity. And he responded to that by not only being an activist for rights for African Americans in his younger days, but then proceeded to serve his country for the rest of his life in public service, uh, which is really an astounding way of of looking at the world and, and one in which a very small number of special people, I feel like, have that kind of outlook uh, among people who are, are public servants. So um, all of our love for John Lewis. So with that, let's move on to our first topic for the week. Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the AJC, laid out his top seven questions for the issues, the personalities, the contests that will shape Georgia politics in 2020. I thought that this was probably one of the easiest ways to understand the landscape of the year that we are entering. I mean, so we just kind of wanted to talk through some of the questions that he laid out in that article and sort of give uh, an additional preview of what is to come this year. Luke, Greg starts his article by asking the question of will Georgia Republicans hold the Georgia House of Representatives after the 2020 election? Democrats believe that they have a shot to take control of the chamber uh, after the 2020 elections. It's, it's probably a bit of a long shot, but it is a realistic opportunity for them. What is your reaction to that question as we enter 2020. Do you think that that's a realistic chance for Democrats? And and what are they going to have to do to get there? I think it is a really important question. I think it's a great question for anyone to start with when they're looking at the 2020 elections in Georgia. So good job, Greg. It's definitely possible. There's a path. It is an incredibly tight path. And Democrats are doing, I think, pretty much all they can do to ensure that it's a viable one. It's definitely not the best opportunity Democrats have for a win. And what I mean by that, like, I think it's far more likely that Democrats could pick up one or both of the Senate seats, win the presidency in Georgia. And if we win the state house, one of those other things has probably happened. And the reason that is, is just that the easy pickings, the seats that it was embarrassing the Democrats hadn't picked up yet, For the most part, we won those seats in 2018. There's one or two of those left, but even if we pick those up, we're not going to take over the state house. Democrats need to flip 16 seats, so picking up those easy wins that remain will definitely not be enough there. Um, So they're going to have to win some districts that were drawn very intentionally to elect Republicans, but it's doable. There's been a lot of shifts in the electorate. Uh, There's lots of places in the suburbs where Democrats haven't really tried to compete, and maybe they competed last time and almost got there but didn't quite make it. I I think it's possible. It's one of those things, you know, people always say Georgia's going to flip blue. People always say Texas is going to flip blue. I think this is more possible than it's ever been. Maybe it's a cycle or two off, uh, which is unfortunate since coming around to why this is a super important question is if Democrats are able to take over the chamber, not only do they, you know, get a first pass at amending the budget and a lot of other wonky behind the scenes things, but the very important, they have a seat at the table uh, for redistricting. And so it's a pretty huge goal 
for Democrats to flip the state house. And I think a sign of that is that I have already started to see the state party and other Democrat groups in Georgia have that as a stated goal in a way that this early and this prominently, I haven't heard Democrats, you, you, you know, promote that goal before. It's always been, you know, uh, beat Brian Kemp or elect the governor or, you know, flip Georgia blue in a general sense. But I actually today uh, saw a social media post of flipping the state house in Georgia. So that, I think, is a sign of how seriously Georgia Democrats are taking that project. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it is a huge thing. Megan, one of the issues at the center of Democrats' arguments for why they should be the majority party in the House of Representatives is that they would undo legislation that instituted a six-week ban on abortions that was passed under Republican leadership. How much of a role do you think the abortion ban and the activist energy around it in the Democratic Party could play in Democrats recapturing that chamber? I think it could be a a really big catalyst for movement. You know, it's one of those things that even those who are moderate do not necessarily agree with the six-week abortion ban because there's a lot of science behind it that says that it's not appropriate. There are also those who don't necessarily hold a hard and fast a moral stance on it, uh, either due to religion or just their upbringing or the way they perceive abortion. So this is something that if the Democrats play their cards right, could catalyze voters who maybe wouldn't have necessarily voted before or wouldn't have necessarily paid attention to say, hey, this is something that's at risk. If you don't vote, this is a decision that's going to be made for you um, and really can get some voters out there. It's also, um, you know, as I mentioned about some moderates don't have necessarily a, a strong stance on the, the issue or, or or don't agree with this particular issue, it's something that could possibly swing some votes and make people look at the Democratic Party's perspective and say, you know what, that aligns more closely with how I feel. And this issue is important enough to me to go ahead and at least in the, this instance, vote for the Democratic candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think you see some evidence that Democrats feel like they are in a good position on this issue. And I think you see some evidence that Republicans maybe feel like they aren't in a good place on this issue. Um, House Democrats, under the leadership of Bob Trammell, the minority leader in the House, have already said that they will introduce legislation to repeal House Bill 481, the abortion ban that was passed last session. On the other side of things, I think you saw evidence that Republicans don't necessarily feel like they're in the best position. In Washington, there was an amicus brief in an abortion case that is being considered in the Supreme Court right now that was signed by dozens of Republicans in Congress calling on the Supreme Court to reconsider and possibly overturn Roe v. Wade. David Perdue, while many of his colleagues signed on to this letter, David Perdue was not one of the senators to sign on to that letter. Many Georgia lawmakers on the House side did sign on to that letter. They are members who are in safe districts who don't feel the pressure that a statewide election puts on Purdue to maybe look more moderate on this issue. Part of what drives Purdue to that calculation, part of what has driven the appointment of Kelly Leffler in the Senate, is that there, there are problems in the suburbs for Republicans on this issue. And many of the state House seats that Democrats need to flip the chamber are located in those same suburbs, even though there are other Republican officials in other parts of the state that do not feel this kind of pressure. So I think that there is some evidence that this issue could drive this discussion for Democrats and give them the argument that they need to at least make a run at the chamber. And that, I think, 
gives us a nice segue to another question on Greg Bluestein's list, and that is, how will Kelly Leffler perform in the U.S. Senate? Kelly Leffler was appointed on an interim basis to serve in Johnny Isaacson's Senate seat until the next election. That election is coming this fall. And part of the rationale for appointing Kelly Leffler to the Senate over somebody like Doug Collins, who we'll talk about here in a little bit, was that she could appeal to a different demographic, uh, particularly moderate women voters in the suburbs who have fled the Republican Party in recent elections. But Luke, Kelly Leffler has not necessarily framed herself as a sort of moderate bridge builder the way that Johnny Isaacson was throughout much of his Senate career. What story has Kelly Leffler tried to tell about herself early in her tenure? And do you think that that takes away at all from the political goal of, of nominating her to bring back moderate Republicans? So I think those are two different questions. So the, you know, First part is, how has she been framing herself? How I would explain that she's framing herself is incredibly defensively, that it is quite obvious that Kelly Leffler, as a politician, I don't know if this is advice that Governor Kemp gave her or just her team, but she is deeply concerned about a, a challenge on the right in a way that I think she's she's overcompensating because she has... I mean, she's she's in the fight with Senator Perdue to be the biggest Trump supporter in Georgia. She's trying to win that battle, and she's also trying to protect her right flank when it comes to the issue of abortion. Now, I think that is probably a direct reaction to the very negative reception that she got from the pro-life community in Georgia who really, really did not like her and were really adamantly against her as a potential Senate, Senate nominee and now senator uh, because of her tangential at best relationship to some groups that have been seen in the past as supporting the right to choose. So how she's been presenting herself is the most pro-Trump, the most anti-abortion, the most right-wing person on the planet. But she also is a female. That, that's, that seems to be the profile that she has adopted, which I think is counterintuitive to what the perceived goal of appointing her would be, it, you know, which is trying to pick up moderate voters in the suburbs again. The only takeaway I can have from what we've seen thus far with uh, Senator Leffler is to Governor Kemp, her appointment, if it, one of the goals was to help Republicans in the suburbs that they think the only thing you need to do to improve Republican performance in the suburbs is identity politics and have a woman. And they think that is the only thing you need. Um, because every other single data point that we have shows that, that that they don't think you need to be more moderate. They don't think you need to hold different positions, that you just near you just have to be a female and that will help you win the suburbs which i think is a very dubious proposition considering the fact that we do not have we never had governor handle and we don't have congresswoman handle right now either um so i i am I'm, I'm kind of confused by the approach that Loeffler's taking here because you know there there's two issues that i, I i'm really concerned about with her and the approach them taking just from a political strategy standpoint which is one there will be a day where Donald Trump is not president and the things that you said about him when he was president will still be remembered and used against you or for you the thing the things that she says as he's being impeached right are things that will last Right. And so just as a, you know, 
from a purely political strategy point, she she does not have a post-Trump world plan as a politician, it does not seem. And, you know, Georgia's changing pretty quickly. And so while she might survive this election, I think this puts her in a very dubious place when she's up for election in 2022, especially if Donald Trump has lost. Well, and to build off of her, like, just the fact that she's a woman and that's kind of been made a thing, we've seen this more than once now. We've seen it with Handel. We've seen it with Loeffler. We've seen it with other... Uh, Georgia lawmakers who are women who support these like kind of anti-woman to my mind measures having a woman a, a female voice behind that somehow makes these measures more okay for those women who um, either don't have a strong stance on it or kind of question it a little bit and so some of the votes that you might get for people that would question it if say a male proposed a legislation that would control a woman those questions kind of go away when you've got a woman speaking for something like this. And so that's just another tactic that's being used. And like her being woman just really helps that. At this point, I am starting to humor the possibility that there was no like three-dimensional chess with Brian Kemp with this appointment and that he just met her and liked her and thought that she was a good advocate for policy positions that he believed in. And there was no greater calculation. There was no concern about what's happening in the suburbs. And that this is just purely, he thought she would vote the way that he would like a senator to vote. Well, he probably does feel that way. I mean, he certainly signaled that in public, but both he and Kelly Leffler have a lot of work to do to convince Georgia Republican primary voters that she is the best standard bearer for conservative policies. The AJC published some polling data that showed a hypothetical matchup between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, the House Republican who President Trump wanted Kemp to appoint to the Senate. This polling data showed a hypothetical matchup in a primary between just these two, and Collins was leading Leffler 56 to 16 which is really shocking giving the other matchup they considered was Kelly Leffler versus Paul Brown. And Leffler was leading that race with a vast majority of the field undecided. There are a lot of Republican primary voters that back Doug Collins, which is certainly getting him to continue to consider challenging her and trying to get that Senate seat, even though he did not get the appointment. Um, and that is something that could spell trouble for Republicans in the jungle primary election that will be this contest next November, this November. Let's talk about another leading woman in Georgia politics, and that is Stacey Abrams. Greg Bluestein asked the question, will Stacey Abrams emerge as a vice presidential contender? This, y'all, to me, has a very easy answer, and I think it's just yes, right? She's already a vice presidential contender who has emerged. Yes. So. Yes. But I think it's worth considering what are some of Abrams' strengths as a vice presidential candidate? And when you take a look at the candidates who are in the top tier, people like Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, for any of the candidates that have a realistic shot to be the Democratic nominee for president, is there anyone on that list who Abrams would not be a good vice presidential pick for? I think she and Warren and she and Sanders, not to say that they're alike, but what I have found, what people try to do with tickets is create some balance. So she would be an obvious choice for Biden. And that's actually already come up. I think it was a few months ago where somebody from the he Biden campaign. He brings it up. Yeah, right. Yeah, somebody from the Biden campaign or maybe Biden Biden himself, brings I, it up. There you go. <laughs> uh, said that like he wanted her on his ticket. And that makes absolute sense because her views are different from his. 
he's very moderate, whereas she's very progressive. And, like, that makes sense. Um, With the Warren and Sanders, like, it, it definitely wouldn't hurt. And, man, if there were a Warren Abrams ticket or a Sanders Abrams ticket, like, that would be, like, just, mwah, I would love that. I just don't see it as kind of like the the logical option of what people try to do with their ticket. Buttigieg, maybe. Um, Buttigieg has some race issues and having a woman of color on his ticket would do some work to maybe counteract that or show that he's taking steps toward changing that. A Buttigieg Abrams ticket would just be Revenge of the Nerds, <laughs> for, for sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I agree, Megan. I really don't think anyone has a bad calculus. And I, the, the only place I would push back is there is actually a historical analog, I think, for a Warren Abrams and a Sanders Abrams, which is kind of Bill Clinton in 92. You know, pick another progressive firebrand uh you know the way that like warren's you know that and abrams is that whereas bill clinton you know new democrat picked another new democrat from the south uh so i i don't think it would be that out of the ordinary just to hit on some of the other strengths of abrams uh you know she is obviously an african-american woman that is the base of the democratic party our most reliable voters uh so she would definitely help in that demographic. Um, The other thing that I think is going to be key this year is that the Midwest, which was the famed blue fire, you know, the blue, the blue wall in 2016, you know, that wall is cracked, uh, exploded in some places. And for any presidential nominee, if I, you know, if I was on their team, I would want to look at the map, you know, by summer of 2020 and be able to make the decision that I could go a Sun Belt route if I wanted to and focus on those states and not focus on the Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania and Ohio's if the math just looks really bad there, which it might. It you know it's it's kind of a toss up right now uh, whether you know going a Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina route is a more viable path than the traditional you know Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin route. And so Abrams opens up that door because obviously she's from Georgia, and that you know is not a slam dunk. You automatically win because you have a VP from the state, but it does help. And she got very close last time, so she obviously knows how to win Georgia. And then North Carolina, similar state, similar issues. I'm sure she has connections there uh, just through proximity. And uh, Florida, also a neighboring state. So there's, there's a strong argument for Abrams. I think anyone could benefit from her being on the ticket. She has a lot of name recognition, a lot of energy. She's already building a pretty strong network. Uh, so it's definitely a thing to watch. Yeah, I think really the only mitigating factor for her as the vice presidential nominee is if she wants the job. Um, I think she said that she would be open to it, but she certainly has her eyes on Brian Kemp still. I mean, I think part of what illuminates her work on voting rights, the fact that she has launched the Fair Fight Action Group, um, the fact that she has launched the Census Group, which is is aimed at getting a full count for the census and is another sort of key foundational part of democracy that she is concerned about. All of that, I think, stems from the 2018 governor's race that was so close that she felt she should have won. That is a race that probably will be close again in 2022, and she would have the benefit of the experience of getting to run statewide for a second time. And if that is her goal, if that is the top of the to-do list, becoming the next governor 
of Georgia, you would think that maybe she would decline a vice presidential nomination, a spot in the next Democratic president's cabinet. But I mean, short of her making different decisions about her career, it does seem hard to come up with an argument for why any of the anybody in the top tier would not select her as vice president. Speaking of Brian Kemp, what Brian Kemp does this year and next year really is probably going to influence Stacey Abrams' decision on whether or not she would accept a VP nomination or whether or not she wants to take another shot at him. So Greg Bluestein asks, how will Governor Kemp handle his second year in office? I think from what we know from early reporting about what to expect during the legislative session, and you're going to get a full preview of legislative session on opening day next week. But what we know right now is Kemp is signaling to the media and to the public that he wants to focus on more moderate issues and that he wants to focus on some of his campaign promises, but that it appears he does not want to get stuck in divisive social issues like the abortion ban that took up a lot of political capital for him last legislative session. But some of the other issues that he has championed, like raises for teachers, they seem unlikely given the budget crunch that the state is experiencing and the cuts that he is demanding the legislature implement during this year's budget. Luke, what is your projection for the kind of governor Brian Kemp is going to be in 2020? Well, Kyle, like uh, all political analysts, I will answer the question I wish you have asked me, which is uh, (laughs) that how how will Brian Kemp's performance in 2020 tell us what kind of governor he's going to be, which is very close to the question you asked me, but it isn't the question you asked. Um, I think this is going to be the defining year for Kemp because like, let's be fair. Like, let's be fair, honest human beings. Like Brian Kemp's never been governor before. Last session was his first time being governor. And while there was a lot of people who were critical, Republicans and Democrats, of how Kemp handled his first session. And at least in my opinion, what we saw from Kemp last time was at the beginning of session, saying these exact things. But then when the legislators came to him and said, hey, Brian, you know these really conservative right-wing things you said you want to do, here is a bill that does them, he said, yeah, let's do that. So what I'll be really curious to see is there's a lot of Republicans who have waited you know, two decades for a actual lifelong Republican who's on the as far to the right as they are to be the governor. And they have that opportunity. And as we discussed earlier, there's a real concern that the Republicans might not be there uh, in the House and the majority. And that concern usually gets displayed through really red meat legislation that is aimed at firing up the Republican base. And I think this year will be a great test for Brian Kemp to see if he will remain focused on what are his main priorities or if he will allow himself to get dragged into these social fights that he says he doesn't want to get into. But if his right wing supporters want those fights, is he going to say not now? Or is he going to say, well, yeah, I guess let's do that. And I think this is going to be really important in defining what his governorship will be like, because as you mentioned, and we're going to get into this a lot more in our preview episode, but Kemp has a lot of big things he wants to do. And 
He's also put a lot of big barriers on himself because of the budget situation that Georgia is going into. It's going to be really, really hard uh, for him to accomplish everything he wants to, and it's going to take a lot of attention, both from the legislature, but also from Brian Kemp himself to really just make the arithmetic work. Effectively, what Brian Kemp is working against right now is the last couple years of Governor Deal's administration, because most of the cuts just naturally are going to have to be targeted at the places where Governor Deal made some pretty big changes and that the legislature was pretty uh, happy to join him in that project of making those changes. And so uh, it's Governor Deal's projects, but it's also a lot of the long-serving Republicans in the state house and state senate's project as well. The next question on Greg Bluestein's list, we've talked about this a little bit recently. A big test for policy implementation for the state in 2020 will be the rollout of new voting machines that were authorized by the state legislature last session, and that since then, the Georgia Secretary of State has begun to shepherd that rollout of new voting infrastructure out to counties. Megan, what is your outlook for how the rollout of these new voting machines will go, what are some of the challenges that the state is going to face, and and do you think the state is prepared for those? So I'll start with the, do I think the state is prepared for this? No, is the short answer. Um, One of the things about rolling out new technology that I see kind of in and out of my day job is that training is crucial and that it's really hard to have enough support in place when you're rolling out something new. And so since there's not a really good way to like, hey, let's all do like a mock run to the polls to see how this goes, like with the number of people that you're going to have, with the you know importance that it's going to have, it's really hard to test for that. It's really hard to prepare for that. So my inner cynic is saying that, you know, as with most of the technology rollouts, I've experienced that don't have like infinite budget, there will be some problems and that's going to affect votes. And that is a problem because everyone's votes, everyone's vote should matter. Another issue is that, you know, we know that that voters don't double check their paper ballots. And that's a problem because with these ballot marking devices, um, you know, it could print out and it could print out incorrectly. And then if voters aren't trained and aren't used to having to double check that, that's going to be an issue. I don't want to get too much into this because we have covered it ad nauseum. And I know um, Luke is able to have some exposure to some of the actual machines. And so that's going to be something that we'll hopefully be able to dive into later. But um, at the end of the day, I don't think we're ready. I think there are definitely going to be some problems. And I'm not optimistic about how this first run with them is going to go. So Luke, these new voting machines are going to be used in possibly the highest stakes elections in Georgia in quite some time. We've already discussed the opportunity that Democrats have to take the state house, but there are also going to be at least a couple of races for Congress where the elections are really close. There are also two Republicans leaving the Georgia congressional delegation. Rob Woodall is leaving in Georgia 7, and that is likely to leave a very competitive race between the Republican and Democrat that will try to succeed him. Tom Graves is also leaving Georgia's House delegation, uh, but he is leaving a very conservative district that is probably almost certainly going to be held by a Republican after he is replaced. Luke, what are you looking at in terms of the competitive races for the U.S. House in Georgia in the 2020 elections? Yeah, I mean, really, it's not too complicated due to the successful gerrymandering of the state. It's really the 6th and 7th. I mean, that's where the action's going to be. That's where you have a lot of candidates already running 
uh, who have been raising money, who are out there. You know, obviously the sixth is held by Lucy McBath, who's a Democrat, so Democrats are looking to hold on to that one. The seventh was going to be competitive, even if Rob Woodall had stayed. With him leaving, it's even more competitive. And in the seventh, a bunch of Democrats had stepped up to run or have explored runs even before Woodall had said that he wasn't going to run again. So I I suspect that's really where most of the action is going to be. When it comes to the other seats, this could change and surprises happen, but at least thus far, there have been no breakout candidates in any of the other districts, and the numbers there are just a lot rougher uh, for Democrats. Yeah, and I think what the 7th Congressional District has given us is actually really interesting primaries on both sides of the aisle. You now have on the Democratic side, Carolyn Bordeaux, a former public policy professor, former Georgia Senate budget director. She was the Democratic nominee in Georgia 7 last time. She ran against Rob Woodall, lost the closest congressional race in the entire country. She is running for that nomination again, but she is encountering a little bit more trouble this time in terms of securing the nomination. Two high-profile endorsements of hers, former Governor Roy Barnes, former Georgia Senator Max Cleland, They were Bordeaux backers early in this contest. They have since switched their endorsements to Zara Karinchak, who is currently a state senator. She flipped that Senate district from Republican to Democrat when she won that seat. She is giving up that seat and making a run for Congress in Georgia 7, and she has secured those two endorsements. It's going to be interesting to see if those flipped endorsements are a leading indicator of Karinchak taking over that primary and being the favorite, or if these are two somewhat unique circumstances, Karinchak is a former legal counsel to former Governor Barnes, um, and she is a veteran like Max Cleland. So one final question here. We started this discussion by asking if Democrats could land themselves a pretty big fish and flip the Georgia House of Representatives, but probably the biggest fish in the sea for Georgia Democrats would be for them to totally flip the state blue, win its two U.S. Senate seats this fall, send our electoral votes to Washington for a Democratic president. Megan, do you think the Democrats are going to succeed in that goal? Uh, I do. I think, okay, I'm a little bit torn on how I want to answer this. My inner optimist who wants to speak things into existence says, yes, definitely yes. The person in me that is like, eh, maybe I should be knocking on wood right now is cautiously optimistic. I think we can. I think there are flippable votes in this state. I think that there is turnout to be had. I think that there is an interest in changing the way Georgia's, Georgia has handled some things. Um, so you know what? Let's just go ahead and say it. Yes, I think we can do it. I want to do it. I'm personally, you know, invested in doing some work toward doing this. And so I just, I think yes. Luke, there are certainly some challenges for Democrats in being able to do that, though. In one of the Senate races, you have four names that we know, people, most of which that we've talked to on the podcast before, John Ossoff, Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Riggs-Amico, and Ted Terry. The four of them are competing to take on Purdue on that side of that race. On the other side, you have... Matt Lieberman is really the only high-profile announced candidate in who is entering the jungle primary for the seat formerly held by Johnny Isaacson. What is your assessment on either side of those Senate races about how much excitement those Democrats are bringing to the U.S. Senate contest and, and whether or not one of them could actually be Georgia's next senator? 
I think both races, nobody's really broken through. I don't think anyone's thinking about it, to be honest. Like, we are, because this is what we do and what we enjoy. But I think most Georgians, they aren't thinking about it at all. And they probably don't know that we have this two-second thing going on. Maybe they hurry on the news a couple times, just because it's super early. Uh, you know, the thing that... I like to think about is it feels like this Senate race has been going on forever. That's uh, true. You know, both the primary and the, the Kemp appointment, all that stuff. It really feels like it's been going on forever. But I, you know, I think the end result did not look this way, but you know, Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn in 2014, they didn't announce until November. I think they both announced in November the year before and they got up to speed, built up a lot of excitement, raised a good amount of money in far less time than these candidates have had to do that. So, you know, I think that is a useful frame. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the last war. That's several wars ago. All the Democrats, the real question for me, I think, is we pretty much know for a fact that someone else on the Democratic side is going to announce against Kelly Loeffler. Like, I, I would be really shocked if the party's like, yeah, we thought about it. Matt Lieberman, he's our guy. <laughs> yeah, I like that would shock me to my core. I mean, the Democratic Party of Georgia has made some weird decisions, but that, that would take it. That would be the one I mount on my wall of the weirdest decision by the DPG. We also know that for the Purdue race, that by May, but actually really by July, because there's going to be a runoff more likely than not, we will have a final candidate. And my question will be for both when we have our actual nominee for the Purdue race and when we have the chosen Democrat to run against Kelly Loeffler, do they start to generate the excitement and money and volunteers that we'll need to see for someone to win these races because they sure in do honest, in all honesty i feel like abrams the abrams evans race was not really that exciting sure there was a lot of people talking about abrams but i really don't even feel like the buzz that she got was really in the context of she is running for governor she will be running against you know brian kemp and they will have an election on this date it was really just like oh the stacy abrams person is interesting and she has a lot of bold ideas and it was just it was abstract i feel like from the idea of an actual election so the thing i will want to see is just like how does the attention of both the voters and the media change when we actually have kind of people second stone that are the anointed people either through the primary election or just through the raw stop star power of who the party lines up behind for the Loeffler race. And if we do see those things, then I think we have a chance. If it basically is a nothing burger and we have a repeat of Jim Barksdale, then it's, it's a going to be a snooze fest. The other factor is the presidential race is only going to flip in Georgia if it is investigating. And it'll be very obvious. We'll be getting presidential visits. We'll get a lot of surrogates visits. There'll be a lot of staff, a lot of money put into Georgia. And I'm of the opinion that the easiest thing to pick off will be the presidential. I think a lot of states could have split verdicts in 2020. I think Georgia is one of those that we could have the senators remain Republican while the presidential goes to the Democratic nominee, uh, depending on who it is and if they target the state. Uh, I think, though, if we win one of the Senate seats, we probably win both. Um, I, I think the fact that Loeffler will have some time being the senator, and since her profile now seems pretty identical to Purdue's, uh, I think 
they're going to go together. So that that's sort of how I rank it. Maybe we pick off the presidential. If we pick off the presidential, then maybe we pick off both Senate seats together. All right. Well, that is where we are going to leave it for today. Um, obviously, these questions really do lay the table for everything to expect in Georgia politics. But there are probably things that we don't expect that are going to come up and surprise us. Um, but there are a lot of exciting things in store for 2020. So we are going to leave it there for now. But Luke, thank you, as always, for joining the podcast. Love being here, Kyle. And Megan, it was wonderful to have you join us today as well. Thank you so much. It's always fun to be here. All righty. Uh, we'll talk to you all again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all. Thank you.